Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you um, once again for this day to set aside. Um, All days are for honoring you. All days are holy. But today is a precious day where your saints gather in corporate worship. We thank you for that, Lord. And Father, I pray. um, I feel the weight of this text. Um, It's a lot. I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word for us. Father, I pray that we would be formed by your word. That we would be Christians. Father, I pray that as a body of Christ here, this expression, that we would be a people defined by grace and truth. That we would seek to honor you above men. That we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, your performing that miracle in our hearts is your business. So we ask you to do it now. In Christ's name, amen. Oftentimes, as culture progresses, the meaning of words evolve. Like the word bachelor. It used to mean a knight. And then it started to mean a rank at a university. And then it started to mean uh, an unmarried man. The word bachelor. From from knight to unmarried men. I'm sure there's some men here who actually like the original title. I don't want to stick with that. Then there's the word... uh, Egregious. Sometimes words become the opposite of what they used to mean. Egregious used to mean remarkably good, and now it means outstandingly bad. And that's interesting. You better be caught up on speed on that one, unless you tell your wife her cooking is incredibly egregious. <laughs> right? Now, these examples are insignificant, obviously. But sometimes words change, and it's very significant, because the words have to do with the biggest questions of reality, right? So we want to make sure we get those get those right. For instance, the word Christian. Right? That has kind of undergone a revision. Um, and that's significant, especially if someone believes to be right with God, you need to be called a Christian. Well, if you don't know what that means, that could be problematic. Eternally so, right? Upon writing Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis got some pushback from people who read it for daring to give a biblical definition of what a Christian is in the book. And so in an updated version, he said this in the introduction. He said, people ask, who are you to lay down who is and who is not a Christian? Or may not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian, far closer to the spirit of Christ than some who do? Now, this objection is, in one sense, very right, very charitable, very spiritual, very sensitive. It has every available quality except that of being useful. We simply cannot, without disaster, use language as these objectors want us to use it. The disaster being, we simply can't communicate truth if we don't have agreed-upon definitions of words, right? And so what's my point in all of this? You probably are asking yourself, which is what I'd be asking. Well, it's this. It seems to me that one of our culture's highest values is a word that has undergone significant revision. And that word is tolerance. 
tolerance. And today we are continuing in our Gospel in Real Life series where we've been taking big issues in culture and looking at them through a gospel lens. And we'll be looking at the important issue of tolerance from a Christian perspective. It's an important word that is used all the time now. Right? You hear it everywhere. And so we better, as Christians, understand what do we mean when, when culture talks about tolerance. So what do we mean when this word is used? Well, historically, the word tolerance or to tolerate something has meant a willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not agree with. That's what, that's what we used to mean. Now, I would contend, and I think it's pretty self-evident, that tolerance means to affirm or to embrace everyone's perspective, or, at the very least, not to disagree with it publicly. You see how that little nuance has drastically changed the force of the word. Before, to tolerate meant, by definition, to disagree with. Now it means not to disagree with or to flatten views out in some sense. And so this is where we need to understand the implications. Because if tolerance is, in the new sense, our highest virtue as a culture, to be intolerant is seen as the highest vice in the culture. Oftentimes you'll hear the words bigoted or hateful right alongside of intolerance. Now in the original sense of the word, absolutely. Christians are never to be intolerant in the original sense. We know that every human has the same dignity and the same value, always. Christians are never to be intolerant in the original sense. And yet, in the new sense, we do have a problem. The first principle of Christianity is that all people are sinners in need of saving, that we all have hearts that are desperately sick, that need regenerating that we are all lost and are in need of finding. That's the first principle of Christianity. So this means there will inevitably be a head-on collision between the gospel of Jesus Christ and a culture that values embracing human autonomy above all else. But this is nothing new, of course. This has always been how it is. The world and the kingdom of heaven. They have always been contrasted. That's why Jesus said things like this in John 15. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So how do we faithfully proclaim the gospel in our times? That's the question. The gospel in real life, tolerance. So the approach we're going to take today is this. We're going to dive into Acts 17 where we find the Apostle Paul in Athens and he's waiting for some of his missionary friends. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to meet up with them so they can continue their missionary work together. Now, as we'll see, Athens was a city teeming with a whole spectrum of philosophies and perspectives, not unlike our times now. Sometimes we get this crazy notion that we are in this unique epoch. We are not. This has always been how it is. And he winsomely but boldly enters into the culture and engages them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to go straight through this text, and it is a long text, so I'm not going to be able to get my hands as dirty in the soil of the scriptures I'd like. We're going to go through 
and we're going to look at eight observations on maintaining a winsome witness in a tolerant age. That's what we're doing. We're going to go through eight observations. We're going to look at Paul as he engages, and we're going to see eight observations on winsomely witnessing in a tolerant age. And this is not like an eight-step program. You can think of this as eight tools in your toolbox, right? So, eight points. Chuck's out of town. I'm going rogue. <laughs> so buckle up. We've got some work to do. Number one, we'll begin our text. We're looking at Paul entering in. He's waiting for his friends, observing. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Get this picture in your mind. Paul is standing there waiting for his friends, and then he starts to observe all the worshipers in the city. By worshipers, I mean humans, because all humans worship. And he notices what they're worshiping. All the idols. And the text says that his spirit was provoked within him. That doesn't quite give the power of that word. The NIV says it was greatly distressed when he saw the objects of their worship. So here's the obvious question. Why was this his reaction? Why was he so distressed in his heart by all the idols in the city? Well, to answer that, we need to know what an idol is. And an idol is anything anyone puts in place of God in their life. That's what an idol is. It's the thing you give yourself to. You sacrifice to it. You worship it because you are trying to find ultimate meaning in the thing. But as we know, idols can never satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. This is why he was greatly distressed. Not because they got the wrong answer on the worldview quiz. It's because these could never bear the weight of a human soul. Imagine a blind man is starving, so he is frantically picking up rocks and trying to bite them because he's trying to find bread. But because he's blind, he can hardly even know better. This would be distressing to watch. How much so spiritually? How much more distressing to see people trying to feed their souls with things that can never satisfy. This is what he's seeing, and he could not help but be moved. And this is what compelled Paul then and compels us now to enter in and engage culture with the truth of the gospel. Not because we are better than anyone else. No, we are all beggars, but we have found the bread. We are moved by love to reach out. Not because we're better. Gosh. It took Christ's crucifixion to save us, too. We're not better than anyone, but we have the bread. Here's a question we have to ask ourselves. When you observe people in your life who are giving themselves to idols, it's your coworker who tirelessly works at forsaking his family, no interest in God. Are you greatly distressed when you see that? Am I? 
If not, we must pray that God breaks our hearts for those who are spiritually blind and fills up with a, with a deep love for them. That's what motivated Paul. That's what motivated us. We are always driven by love. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love. Number two, he engaged in a reasonable way. Verse 17 through 18a. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So he observes the idols and the worldviews within Athens, and then he engages them. And Luke, the author of Acts, it's interesting, his method. It says he first reasoned with everyone. And it is fair to say that this is not one of our strengths as a culture, right? Reasoning with people about different thoughts. Just look at the comment thread on any news story, and it's tragic. We have devolved greatly, not Paul. He reasoned. As Christians, we must resist entering into the culture of outrage that is the very air we breathe. As Christians, we should not be easily outraged. We should be thick-skinned. We should be reasonable. Are you reasonable? Do you seek to understand the viewpoints of people who disagree with you? Or do you just consume media that reinforces your own thoughts and live in a veritable echo chamber? Just kind of getting yourself all hopped up, us versus them. No. If we are going to be faithful ministers of the gospel, we must care both about what people believe and why they believe it. People believe things for a reason. Notice Paul again. It says, he reasoned with the Jews, but not just that. He was also to hang, able to hang with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He could speak their language. He understood where they were coming from. Now, I'm not saying we need to all go out and study Greek. But I am saying that we should know the people in our spheres of influence. Why does the atheist in your cubicle believe what he believes? Do you understand why he came to that conclusion? Or the relativist who thinks all paths lead to God? Why, why do they believe that? If we have some people... Uh, in our lives that the Lord has placed for us to minister to, surely it's worth taking 30 minutes and Googling some of their beliefs. And you'll be amazed if people know that you have taken the time to understand them, they will uh, be surprised. (laughs) It might actually be an open door for a chance to share the full gospel. Consider two verses. Philippians 4, 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I love that. And 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is how we honor Christ, not by belligerently attacking a caricature of somebody's beliefs, but as offering reasons for the hope that we have gently. And respectfully, this was Paul's first attempt to engage with the culture here. Number three, so once again, we're observing what Paul's doing. This is the third thing we see. His winsome witness provided a wider platform. Verses 18b through 21. 
And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Once again, because he didn't approach them belligerently or ignorantly, people started to take notice, right? Paul built a bridge first before putting up a wall. And notice what it says here. So they took him to the Areopagus. So, so what's that all about? What's the Areopagus? Well, it's also known as, as Mars Hill. And it was the the cultural and political center heartbeat of Athens. And this is where people would go and and make proclamations or make defenses if they were on trial. And so they were literally asking Paul now to make a formal address concerning Jesus in the resurrection. That's a win. (laughs) Go to the Areopagus and make a formal address concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what his winsome witness got him, a wider platform now. And this teaches us oftentimes leading people to Christ will come through relationship and trust. We build a bridge. We till the soil. And when the time comes, we sow the seeds. But we must be always waiting for the time when we can articulate in no uncertain terms the truth of the gospel. It isn't just enough to be nice to people. Our charge from Jesus himself is to go make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to obey everything he taught us. There's that quote um, that says, always preach the gospel and and when necessary, use words. Um, Sounds good. Um, I agree with it. I would just say, you always have to use words or you haven't preached the gospel. Um, We can certainly show the love of Christ, but the gospel is, is an objective series of facts. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again. Salvation is through Christ only. And so this is what he did. He built a bridge, and then he preached the gospel. Verse 21 is interesting because I think it really reflects the spirit of our age in a significant way. Look again. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Some people were interested in simply asking questions. It was, like, it was like sport for them. Now, it is certainly good to ask questions, but only if we are serious about answering them. It's not okay to just re- endlessly ask questions as if there is some sort of nobility in that. And there is a tendency in, in some of us, even professing Christians, to place a huge value in asking questions seemingly over proclaiming answers. This type of thinking is not only completely foreign to the Bible, but it is a tactic of the enemy to make people feel spiritual without submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's just true. The gospel means good news that is proclaimed, right? So absolutely ask questions, but make sure you're looking for answers. 1 Timothy 1, 3b-4, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So, Paul was not just hoping to play philosophical badminton with the philosophers. He came to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And now we transition in the text to his actual address from the Areopagus. And this brings us to our fourth observation. He affirmed their deep spiritual thirst. Verses 22 through 23a. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Paul begins his sermon by affirming these people were very religious. They indeed had a deep spiritual thirst. Now, we don't like the term religious as much anymore, so we we use spiritual, right? Spiritual, but not religious. That's coming from the same yearning, the same thirst in everyone. It's just repackaged in different language. Ecclesiastes says it this way. God has put eternity into man's heart. Everyone has eternity built into their hearts because the human soul is the stuff of eternity. That's just what it is. So we can't get away from it. And part of having a winsome witness is affirming the God-shaped thirst that everyone has, regardless of what they say they believe. Even if someone you know says they're not spiritual or they're not religious, I bet they still marvel at a sunset. I bet they still deeply desire to be loved. Why? Because they're made in God's image. They were made by the God of glory to respond to his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. And they were created by a relational God, a triune God. And so they desire relationship. We just can't escape it. And so even though they made an altar to an unknown God, just trying to cover their bases, Paul says, I see you. You have this yearning in you. That's good. That's right. And then he goes to the fifth thing. And this is our fifth observation. He then proclaimed the objective truth of the creator God. Okay, this is a longer section. So I'll read it again and then hop back to the beginning. He goes on to say, What therefore you as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Something that I often remind people of when I speak of ultimate questions like this is this. There is an objective truth that actually exists that is not waiting for me to agree with it, to legitimize it. There just is. The sun's not waiting for me to tell it that it is shining to shine. It's just doing its thing. You know why? Because the sun is not contingent on me. 
to exist. It is non-contingent to me. I'm just a man. (laughs) And so it is with the creator of the Son. It is an objective truth that the creator God exists. How do we know? Creation. It's here. There is a creative God. There is not a vague spirituality. We need someone with creative fiat, the ability to create. And this is what Paul points to initially. What you call unknown, I proclaim to you, the God that created everything. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews had a name for God. God gave him this name. Call me Yahweh. That literally means I am who I am. I am regardless of anything else. Romans 3. What if some are faithless? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? No. God will remain true even if every man becomes a liar. God exists. And now he continues his sermon and he drills this point home. And then he goes on to say, he is the giver of all life and breath. Every breath that every human has ever taken has been hand-delivered by the creator God. And in this we see his unfathomable grace and patience with us. Even those who reject God, he hand-delivers every breath, gives them the ability. Oh, that we would see the patience and love of God in the fact that we are here And as Christians in Los Angeles in 2017, we need to grow spines of steel with our confidence in the objective reality of the creator, God. That there is one God, he is only revealed in the Bible, and we need to stand firm in our confidence that what he says about everything he created is the ultimate truth. If not, we will be tossed to and fro constantly if we're waiting for culture to give us the thumbs up on everything we believe. We're in spiritual war. As Christians, we believe in God, and we believe in his word. And the truth is, there will certainly come times when maintaining our Christian convictions will put us at odds with the culture. That's a given. Such as believing in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, or maintaining a biblical sexual ethic, there will always be a temptation to soften our allegiance to Christ in order to be seen as relevant. But we must purpose in our hearts today that we will be people who are committed to telling the truth in love. Love only exists where truth exists. We need to have spines of steel because it's not going to get any easier. Consider Galatians 1.10. This is something that's often ringing in my ears when I'm tempted to soften my convictions? Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Once again, we are always to be respectful, kind. We are not better than anyone. But the creator God exists, and he has spoken to us. And he says, this is what it means to be fully human. This is what it means to flourish. This is what it means to reflect my glory. And as Christians, we say yes and amen to that. He proclaimed the objective truth of the creator God. Next, 
he found common ground where he could. Verses 27b through 29. He goes on, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he gives a strong view of the sovereign creator of all things. And then he shows them how their religious expressions actually have echoes in reality. That first part, in him we live and move and have our being, some people's favorite Bible verse, just totally fine, it's right there. What's interesting is it's from a poem to Zeus. And so he's finding common ground. Even some of your own people have said that. That, that is true. He affirms that. He is eager to find common ground. He is eager to extend a hand. And he goes on to show them where their spirituality, spirituality logically breaks down. He says, God is close to us, and we can learn about him through every facet of life. I agree with you on this. And you say that we are his offspring in some sense. I agree with you in that. Well, if we are his offspring, how can he be a stone? That's the line of of reasoning. He's saying, "Think, think this through. Even you say we're his offspring. So why are you worshiping this idol? That idol can't progenerate you. He shows them that they need a far more powerful God to account for their existence and the existence of the world. He was appealing to their minds here, to what they already believed, and was inviting them to think deeper about these things based on your own inclinations. About two weeks ago, a, a dear friend of mine called. He's, he's not a Christian, but we've had an ongoing dialogue for about a decade now. And he was listening to some podcast, uh, and I was talking about Christianity. So he, he called me up, and he's an engineer by trade. And we've had lots of great discussions, but he's very into design and math and precision. And so time and time again, I bring him back to the unbelievable precision of the created world. I remind him, and this is worth reminding ourselves, we are 90 million miles away from a flaming ball of fire that is winging us around at 67,000 miles per hour. Not only that, we're tilted on just the perfect axis, spinning at 1,000 miles per hour this way, going around. And I sit at Starbucks with a light breeze drinking a latte, calling it pleasant. That's insane. You're an engineer. How do you explain that? Nothing produced something than self-organized? It's insane. And he knows it. He says, yeah, you're right. That demands an explanation. And so I said, well, I hope that I just put another stone in your shoe this week. And he texts me a couple days later. He's like, I went for a hike with my wife today. And I kept getting stones in my shoe. And that that has never happened to me on a hike. And I said, that's because God's real, bro. Believe it. I want to find common ground. I love him. I really love him. I'm not trying to beat him over the head with the Bible. I want him to believe in Jesus. I want them to be saved, right? That's what we do. We're not belligerent. We're not simplistic. We meet people where they're at. We are kind with them. And we move on now. Number seven, we're doing good. 
he then clearly articulated the whole gospel. Verses 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now Paul, standing at the epicenter of the Athenian world, articulates the whole gospel. He didn't have several tips for improving their life. He has one command for everyone, everywhere, given by God Almighty. Repent. Repent. Judgment is coming. Turn before it's too late. This is not a popular thing to say, but it's never been popular. Jesus got crucified. All the apostles were martyred. And as I said at the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ is inevitably on a collision course with the culture of tolerance. Not because Christians are intolerant, but because God in his holiness is intolerant of sin. And he will ultimately judge the world against his righteous standard. He will not then ask us for our opinions or how progressive our ideas are. He won't be asking us to join the conversation or to be open-minded about his perspective. When we stand before the creator and the judge, there will be one question. Were your sins washed clean by the blood of the lamb? Or did you reject Christ? And are you now wanting to pay for your sins yourself? Did you respond to the greatest act of love that could ever be imagined? God creates. His creation rebels. He pursues them by becoming one of them. He gives himself for them to demonstrate his love, to take on their sin. He resurrects, conquering Satan's sin and death, and ascends on high and extends his hand. It's a free gift. Forgiveness of sins. It's right there. That's what's at stake. It's not popularity. It's these matters are eternal. And then an eternal verdict will be issued. This is what Paul's saying. I didn't write it. Eternal life or eternal condemnation. That is what's at stake. And he has called us to be ambassadors on his behalf, heralding the good news of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ. We are compelled by love, not by a desire to be right. We're compelled by love. Do we believe the gospel? Do we have a joy in our salvation? If so, how could we not be provoked in our spirit to share it? Kindly, gently, urgently. Philippians three eighteen through 19. This is Paul again. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. May God stir us with a renewed urgency for reaching our friends with the gospel. And this is an invitation to you now. If you have never 
received forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. You could have that today. Just call out, Father, forgive me. I receive what your son has done. And he will do it. If you want to talk more about that, it would be my greatest joy in life. Just mark that on the connect card. And now we're rounding the corner. The final observation. He left the results to God. Verses 32 through 33a. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. Notice there were three reactions to his gospel witness. Some mocked, some were opening to hear him more, and some believed. And the truth is, if we are bearing a faithful witness, we should at one time or another have categories for all three of these. There should be a time where people think we're crazy, archaic even. That makes sense. I understand why, why they would think that, except for that this is true. And we aren't outraged when that happens. We say, I get that. I understand that. Just because someone thinks you're intolerant doesn't mean you did something wrong. It could, (laughs) if you're a jerk. But it might mean you did something very right and you told them the truth and they were not ready to receive it. Consider 2 Timothy Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul knew that he had no means of saving people. I plant, Apollos waters, God brings the growth. And so we are called to bear a faithful and a winsome witness in a tolerant culture and trust the sovereign hand of God, the Lord of the harvest, to reap a harvest, to get the glory for his salvation. So let us pray to that end, that the Lord would stir us afresh. Father in heaven, we, even when we read this, we are awed at our salvation for those of us who have claimed Christ. That while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ came to us and died for us. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are serious about eternity, who are serious about life and death who are serious about those in our sphere of influence who don't believe, who are not prepared for the eternal kingdom. Father, I pray that you would make all of us a winsome witness. Salt and and that you would bring a harvest in our lives. Even as the vision that we feel you've given us here says that we would be revived And then we would reach our friends. And then culture would be renewed to that end as we anticipate the renewal of all things for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray.